and welcome to At Home With, a podcast from the residential business at Knight Frank. At Home With offers a glimpse inside the lives of some of the world's foremost property experts. And every week you'll be hearing conversations with agents from across our business about how they made it to where they are today, how they found their dream homes, and how we can help you find yours. I'm your host, journalist and social media executive at Knight Frank, Rebecca Hills. Today, I'm joined by Paddy Dring, our global head of prime sales. Paddy and I will be chatting about the highs and lows of his career, his most exciting property sales, and what it really takes to make it in the world of real estate. Paddy joined Knight Frank back in 1989 and has since worked in both the international and UK country house markets. For the past 24 years, however, his focus has been purely international, principally in the key markets of Europe and the Caribbean, as well as further afield. Paddy offers a specialised service at the super prime level and has unrivaled knowledge and experience of the sector. Paddy, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the podcast. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Good morning. How are you doing today? How has life in lockdown been for you, especially since international travel has been halted to the extent that it has? Well, it's been an extraordinary transition. I mean, I sit here in my home just uh, west of London. The sun is shining uh, and I have already had three uh, calls this morning with different parts of our global network, all of whom are experiencing you know, very different uh, levels of activity as we emerge from lockdown. So yes, it's challenging times, but very rewarding uh, in many ways. And I can imagine that as global head of prime sales, international travel is a huge part of your life. How have you found adapting to being at home all the time and not being able to travel the world as you usually would? I, I think you know the start of it was was definitely challenging uh, to, to to face the reality of no aeroplanes. But I I feel that we perhaps have underutilized a lot of the technology that we now have at our fingertips, and we are seeing, of course, over the last eight nine weeks of of us being at home, this incredible interaction with all of our different teams and clients around the world. Uh, at, a, at a much more personal level, I think, through through technology. And it's it's much better than we ever imagined it would be. And I think it's, it's dare I say, much more efficient. So I, I feel there are many lessons for us to learn uh, going forward that I really hope that we hang on to. Mm, absolutely. I think it really has, as you said, stepped up that digital transformation process and made us all have to adapt. And as I've spoken to with previous guests on this podcast, it's made us all have to engage with social media in ways that we wouldn't necessarily do before. Have you found yourself enjoying the more digital elements of lockdown life or are you quite ready to get back to the office and get that semblance of pre-lockdown normality back? I think the office is still a vital part of our business uh, and will always be. Obviously, we're going to be using the office in a different way, but I think we have all adapted remarkably quickly. Uh, you know, our, our infrastructure as a business has been outstanding and has uh, stood us through this eight or nine weeks uh, remarkably well. But I think that we are finding new ways of working and I think we are having to be more ruthless with our time and our time management. It's so easy to slip back into one's office at any time of the day because you are here. But I think if if one carefully plans one's days uh, and divides it up between you know, talking to the team, which is obviously vital because we've got to keep in touch with uh, all of the teams on a fairly regular basis, uh, and then also enough client interactivity, absolutely works. Uh, so I, I am really excited about the future. Of course, there is a great deal of unknown, and we are feeling that with our clients. But information is king, and more than ever, our clients need a view, and so we 
through our amazing research, are able to provide uh, a very good view. And of course, pull on our experience. We've never experienced anything like this before in our time. I've been at Knight Frank 30 years, uh, and I have seen downturns, but never one like this. But there are lessons that we have learned along the way. So we now have to make sure we use those when we are giving our clients advice. And from the future, I'd like to take us back to the past. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about what it was that made you decide to pursue a career in property? Yes, it, it, it's fascinating. I, I spent the first 16 years of my life thinking I was going to go into the Royal Navy. My father was in the Navy for 35 years of his life, but I had two elder brothers and they had moved towards property. And I saw that actually it was a profession that I really loved. I trained in land management uh, I've always been country orientated and then ended up through work experience being offered a job at Knight Frank. And then from there was offered a job to work in London in the country house sales department, not what I initially anticipated. And very quickly, I became hooked on the world of, of real estate and agency. And I had always loved buying and selling through my teens, various things. And, and then, of course, seeing the very best uh, in action in London definitely made me want to do more. So it, it was unexpected in some ways, but I trained in the right profession. And uh, that has definitely held me, held me through with my qualifications. And when you first started out, what was it that you found the most exciting? What in particular gave you the bug for property? I think it was the unpredictability uh, or unpredictable nature of the business we're in. You never know from one day to another um, who is going to ring. Uh, we have buyers coming from you know every part of the world. And obviously, when I started those years ago, that perhaps wasn't quite the global landscape that we have now. So we really do have that unknown of buyers coming from everywhere, which is incredibly exciting. Dealing with some of the most incredible properties around the world, I think I could see was always going to be exciting. And that opportunity to travel, Knight Frank back then was a smaller global business, but it did have that global dimension and it had that you know, advantage over some of its competitors. And you know, within two years, I had the offer, uh, an opportunity to work in Spain. And that, again, was absolutely not what I expected. But I grabbed it with open arms and I have never looked back. It's amazing that you had that opportunity to work with our Spanish officers. Was that moving directly to Spain or working from the UK and managing those officers from here? It was in 1991 and the market was in a terrible state. And we had opened an office uh, a year previously. The timing was incredibly unfortunate for us. And I was sent down there, obviously, as a graduate, effectively, maybe two months, maybe six months, uh, they said. And I said, whatever would be absolutely fine by me. And I ended up being down there for six months from May through to October. So I saw a complete season and watched a market emerging from a backdrop of no deals. So one really had to be creative. And it was, for me, a blank sheet of paper. Uh, I just had to do anything I could to create deals. And, and that, I'm pleased to say, I began to do. And then we, you know, we got the business back on its feet and uh, I came back to London to work in our country house team. And then within six months, I had been asked to get involved in the south of France where we were beginning to do business. And then we started the international department uh, with myself, a little time of my boss then, Christopher Cornell, and half a secretary. Uh, and now it is a team you know, with absolute force and you know, more than 20 people working in central London, a network of you know, more than 
50 different associates uh, around Europe and then much further beyond. As you well know, we're 500 offices in 60 territories and 19,000 people around the world, both residential and commercial. So it is a remarkable business that we have. And how did you find almost being thrown in the deep end in Spain and having the responsibility to get that office back on track? Was it overwhelming at points or did you take to it quite well? It was overwhelming to start with, I suppose, because it was a completely new territory for me. I'd never been to Marbella, but we were coming from a very low base. So I had very few fears. And I suppose the excitement of anything that I could do would hopefully be positive and certainly couldn't be any worse. So I just saw it as a massive opportunity for me and made some amazing contacts uh, and connections with clients, some of whom I have maintained right until this day, 30 years later. And do you think it's important in those early years to throw yourself into any experience and opportunity that comes your way, even if it does seem intimidating or overwhelming and you've not experienced it before? Absolutely. I, I always say to you know, young people joining our business, you know, please always be as open-minded as you can to any opportunity that comes your way in your early career, because the opportunities now are far greater in our business than they've ever been. And you never know where the journey is going to take you. So by being open-minded, you can be given opportunities for responsibility that you absolutely were not expecting. And that can then give you an amazing leg up in your career. And I am never ever regretted that decision way back when to go to Marbella. It was a real turning point for me. And upon returning from Spain, you moved back into our UK country house team and then went on to form our international office. Was that experience in Spain really formative for you in terms of giving you that desire to work in international markets? Was that where the impetus to set up the international office came from? It it was most definitely informative. Ultimately, like many of the decisions we make at Night Frank, it is reacting to our clients' needs. And at that time, we had more and more of our clients who either had a house abroad or wanted a house abroad. And not being able to service those clients was irritating, to say the least. Uh, So we had to do something about it. And that was the, um, you know, that was the net result that we set up the international department at the time. More than 60% of our buyers came from the UK because the UK, the British were great buyers of overseas properties going back to the 60s, both in the south of France, in Tuscany, uh, in the south of Spain. You know, they were all you know, popular, popular with, with the British. And, and as we got into those markets, we could see that we were able to pick up many other nationalities who either had property in the UK or other parts of our network or wanted um, advice in those markets. So it very quickly became a, you know, a dual flow of clients going in both directions. And it was also incredibly important for our brand. We had a global brand, but we needed to make sure we had people on the ground and business on the ground, uh, not just dots on a map. And now we live in such a globalised world that it seems almost second nature to have an international department within a company such as Knight Frank. But in those early years, what sort of teething problems did you have? What was it like working across so many different markets and navigating new terrain for the company? Um, I think understanding the legal system in a country is uh, is always a bit of a challenge. It certainly was b- back then, and and having you know the available advice, the correct advice on on a very professional level. Tax has always been a challenge uh, for people to really understand the tax consequences of uh, buying and selling abroad and owning abroad. And obviously, every country has a different approach to that. 
uh, and indeed tax is being used to control investment flows, as we have seen from our wealth report um, increasingly, as they have not wished um, overseas investment to cloud uh, and negatively affect to too great an effect their domestic markets. So I, I think it's legal. I think it's tax, uh, and I think it's access. You know, there are far more flights every day um, to you know the different locations where we operate than there ever were, and it's far more affordable. Mm, and I suppose when you're considering a career in international property, the first thing that comes to mind isn't necessarily going to be those legalistic and tax-based implications of working in different markets. And to that point, what advice would you give to somebody who's seen your career trajectory and wants to get into working in international property, loves the idea of the, the traveling and the work on exceptional properties across the world? What advice would you give to somebody who's considering that career path? I think it starts with being worldly wise. And uh, many people have traveled to different parts of the world through their childhood. And I think that travel, uh, and if one hasn't, then my advice is always travel as much as you can. Um, and while you're at university, travel as much as you can to experience different cultures and, and different economies and really understand how the world works because that stands you in very good stead when you move into the international market. Moving closer to property, inevitably work experience with us or other comparative businesses. I, it doesn't always have to be property, actually, when you're gaining experience. I mean, we, for example, at the moment are looking at uh, the world of hospitality, because much of our business is founded on incredible customer service. And so, you know, we look at the hospitality world to recruit. So that should certainly be part of somebody's work experience. And, and then actually, I think it's just understanding the dynamics of the market as much as you can from research. There is so much information out there. You know, the World Wide Web is something that I haven't really mentioned and I should have done, is something that has transformed our lives. You know, our clients had to come to us to get a visibility of what was in the market. Now, they just have to go on the web. They have thousands of properties at their fingertips, it may be difficult for them to navigate through it. Um, so look, somebody wanted to get into the industry, travel, experience different cultures, get good work experience, uh, and try and do, I think I would say, a relatively relevant degree. It's not essential, but, it, but it's helpful. And then it, depending on which aspect of property you want to get into, then consider a either doing a property degree or doing a master's after your property degree, because being qualified is an advantage, but it's not an essential. And do you think having language skills is important for working in international property? Would you say it's vital? Or do you think you can get by without those skills? Yes, you're absolutely right. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> I missed one of the most important elements of our recruitment now is that we do, of course, favour people with languages. I always say don't, don't stop applying to us just because you don't have a language, because we do have the capability on the ground in each country. But it definitely uh, improves your chances of doing business by being able to, to speak the language. We talk a lot on this podcast about the value of mentoring and the importance that having somebody to look out for you and give you advice throughout your career is, is vital to being successful. Is there anybody that particularly sticks out in your mind that's really helped you in your professional journey? I'm very lucky to have had some excellent mentors along the way. The first person really who uh, I worked with in the international business was was a man called Christopher Cornell. Um, and he ran the residential division at Knight Frank, but he also uh, started the European or helped to start the European business and network. And I worked very closely with him when we started the international department and built 
the initial European network, which was in France, Italy, Portugal and Spain. And then after after Christopher, Patrick Ramsey, um, who also ran the residential division, but had a great passion for our international business and really helped to uh, develop our international network and put it on you know, a very different level. Uh, from a proper global perspective. And, you know, the birth of the Wealth Report 13, 14 years ago uh, was a big part of helping that to happen, to join the dots of our already, you know, growing uh, international business. And then more recently, um, I've worked very closely with Andrew Hay, uh, who's just retired, uh, and he took over the residential division from Patrick, but equally had a very strong and firm eye on the global residential business. Mm, and it's amazing that you've had those mentors throughout your career to help guide you in the right direction and and make sure that you're fulfilling your potential in that regard. And you touched there a little bit on the, the Wealth Report, which for those who don't know is an annual publication we produce. For anyone who hasn't heard of the Wealth Report before, would you mind telling us a little bit more about it and why it's so valuable tonight, Frank? So it tracks investment flows uh, of the wealthy around the world. And within it, uh, we focus on obviously the performance of the top 100 markets. Uh, we think it's incredibly important for clients to be able to see how their assets, uh, their property assets in different parts of the world, wherever they are, are performing. Those who have uh, stock portfolios will get a report uh, every quarter, if not more regularly sometimes. With property, that hasn't historically always been the case. So the Wealth Report uh, is a fantastic publication that enables us to uh, communicate with our clients. So we use it, obviously, for keeping in touch with our clients, informing them what the markets are doing. We're looking at trends in wealth. We're looking at the growth of wealth around the world. But we're also looking at the touch points uh, and sensitive parts of it, you know, philanthropy and trends uh, of how the wealthy are behaving, and also with our luxury index you know, what else are they investing in and how are those asset classes performing against property, uh, whether it be wine, fine art, vintage cars, whatever. And do you think it's important for anyone working in the property industry, not just those working in the international and prime and super prime markets to have that in-depth market knowledge, be able to see comparative assets and understand asset classes in the way that the Wealth Report sets out? Do you think that having that knowledge is vital for making you stand out against competitors? I absolutely do. Information is king and our clients need to feel that their agents, their advisors are well informed and absolutely can advise them from a local, national and global perspective. They're not expecting their London agent or their you know, agent in the south of France to know in great detail, but they are expecting them to have an understanding of how the global markets are working and uh, not only how markets have performed historically, but actually what their views are on the future. I think increasingly, particularly given the situation we are in today, incredibly challenging. But what are our views? Clients want to know. They have to make decisions and they can only do that with our view and our research to back it up. And going into your current roles as chairman of the private office and global head of prime sales, how do you incorporate that expertise and that knowledge into what you're doing now? And how does it differ from what you were doing as head of international prior to this? My role running the international department still had a focus on uh, the top end of the market. And we saw, of course, over time, uh, with the investment flows and the creation of wealth around the world, 
uh, that we were encountering more and more high net worth individuals. And it was important for us to really work out how we could give them a better service and at the same time connect our network more effectively. You know, we would have a client who would uh, want to buy in London. We would look after them. That agent looking after them would uh, give them a fantastic service, but perhaps not always ask the question, how else can I help you? And we then would find that perhaps they've gone and bought something in another country without our knowledge, and yet we had an office there, if only we had known. And they would spend their time telling us, well, I didn't know you operated in that marketplace. So the opportunity was there uh, for us uh, to really do something which was much more focused on the customer service and making sure that we uh, were making them more aware of our abilities, both residentially and commercially. So the private office really became and has become the axis of how we look after our ultra high net worth individuals, whether their their interest is residential or commercial, and become their one point of contact. And as you mentioned there, having those relationships with clients and offices all around the world is vital to the success of the private office. And you were instrumental in forging our relationship with Douglas Element in the US. Can you tell us a little bit more about this partnership and why it's so valuable to us as Knight Frank? It works ex- extremely well. Of course, I would say that. Uh, Douglas Elliman are very similar business to us uh, in so much as it is led by a remarkable man, Howard Lauber, who is very much involved in the business day to day. They have 7,000 agents in 120 offices and they cover the main markets of the States. And for us, the States was an Achilles heel. We had been involved in the States. We had a commercial partner. We did not have residential ability. And we had begun to see more American clients coming into other parts of our network. And we had also seen an increase yet again of our clients wanting to acquire and invest in the States. So we had to do something about it. And eight years ago, we went back to Douglas Elliman, having actually worked with them in the 1980s. Residentially, Douglas Elliman are, are covering those main markets, um, New York, Hamptons, Long Island, uh, down into Florida, Miami, Palm Beach, and then over uh, onto the West Coast, LA, and then now more recently into Colorado and also Texas. And digging a little deeper into the, I suppose, psychology and marketing side of American real estate, there is this huge emphasis that is placed in that market on personalities and almost influencer agents. Have you noticed a similar transition in the UK industry towards that more personality side of real estate? Yes, they, they have in many ways led the way in social media, just taking that as an example. And I think we've learned a great deal from them. The nature of that market is that they are promoting themselves as individuals within the broader business. And Knight Frank is a partnership. We are, we are, we are a team. Uh, we are acting together. Uh, so the cultures are slightly different, but the businesses are aligned in so much as we are acting in our clients' best interests at all times. And Douglas Elliman, uh, I think above all, acts as a fabulous team. Um, they really do. And they are now so engaged with Knight Frank, given their improved understanding of, of, of what the relationship is really about and how their clients want to have that global exposure when they are selling their properties. And to bring things back to the property, over your 30-year career spanning all over the world, is there any particular story or memory of a property that really stands out in your mind? Uh, I am asked this question frequently, and I, 
I I don't have an absolute favourite because I see so many advantages in every location we work, and I love them all dearly, uh, and I enjoy visiting them all. Um, so that because they all offer different experiences, I suppose inevitably some of your best memories are are, are related to properties. Uh, in your early years, property sales in your early years, and I, I, I've certainly always enjoyed my my business in in Italy. And there was a property that we were struggling to sell. I think it took three years. A client was uh, perhaps not as serious about selling, but then something changed in their lives. They got a low offer, uh, and I, as I do frequently, find myself saying, "You know, this is a different chapter in your life. Um, you're coming to an end of one, and you're starting another." And don't become totally obsessed about price. It's actually about the opportunity of achieving a sale and then taking that money and, and moving on. And that client at the time took quite a bit of persuading, but within weeks had rung me and said, Paddy, you know, you gave us such good advice and I really appreciated it. We needed to be told and, uh, and, and credited me with you know, the fact that I had given them what they certainly saw as professional best advice. And the thread I'm picking up there in what you're saying is that of being a trusted advisor, especially working in prime and super prime markets. Do you think that that trust is vital and imperative to being successful? I think it's the start point for a client. I think when you I think when you meet a client, they look at you and they assess in their minds, you know, can we get on together? But actually, is there going to be trust between us? And I have always felt that trust is the most important issue. And so when one is building relationships with clients, you are actually doing it through trust, uh, in my view. Uh, so no, no question, it's it's absolutely vital. And that trust, I still hear play back to me, you know, for some of my clients who I've worked with for and some of our clients we've worked with for more than you know, 20, 25 years. And as somebody with such an illustrious and far-reaching career in property, how do you go about developing such trusted relationships? How have you learnt that over time? I think it can be the simple things to start with that are the most important. Uh, and I think very often listening to a client and understanding them and their needs uh, and then showing them that you have understood and you have listened. It sounds so basic, but my goodness, it is so important because in doing so, you create good connectivity with them if you can do that at the outset. And then thereafter, raw enthusiasm, hard work, and amazing communication. You know, just the other day, a client said to me that he did not feel a particular you know, business that he had dealt with had communicated very well. And that was one of the reasons why he was coming to us. And that was just music to my ears because it's something that I have preached for many years. Uh, but hearing it you know, played back from a client is, is uh, very meaningful. And this podcast is called At Home With, so I always like to be a little bit nosy and find out what it was that made you fall in love with your home. So what was it that made you decide to choose the home that you're living in now? Rebecca, we live about an hour west of London in North Hampshire. Uh, we've been here for about 13 years. And like many of our clients, the the, the motivating factor to, to change was, was schooling. We had uh, a 
and have a daughter of eight and uh, a son of five. And at that time, uh, they were ready to change school. We found a school, luckily, uh, not easy to find a school um, uh, that you can get into at short notice. And so we had to find a house very quickly, which was close by. Uh, of course, it had to be commutable to London. I sound just like my clients. And uh, it had to be in easy access of the airports uh, with my travel. Uh, we found a house that needed a lot of work, which was great because we loved doing projects. We'd done a project in London. My wife uh, has far more patience than I do in, in such projects. And she has a very good eye and a, a good eye for interiors. And, you know, over 13 years, we made quite a lot of changes uh, and, you know, have created what we you know feel is a lovely family home where we're very happy to be for another decade or more. Um, our children now, 21 and 18, uh, final year of university and no A-levels this year. So it's been quite an extraordinary experience for us being at home. But luckily, our home is well set for it. So it's been a real pleasure to spend more time at home. And my wife keeps reminding me that perhaps I'll learn something from this. Uh, hopefully, of course, I will. And have you got a favourite area of your home? Is there a particular point that you love going to more than any others? I suppose, especially since we've all been in lockdown, has there been a place that you've been gravitating to the most? My wife jokes that my favourite part of the part of it is is my workshop. It's the one place that she's not allowed anywhere near, and uh, she she's fantastically good at decluttering. I'm I'm a little bit of a hoarder. Uh, not very good at throwing things away. They might always come in handy, but she's had a great influence on me in, in improving that bad habit. But my workshop's my workshop and she's not allowed anywhere near that. Um, and in my workshop, of course, we've got lots of things, toys for the garden. Um, and, it, you know, we've got three acres and I spend my time outside. I love being uh, in the garden, uh, pottering about, as she calls it. Of course, I'm doing hard gardening in my mind. Uh, we live on the edge of the downs, so biking, uh, running, and we don't live so far from the coast. So we both have a passion for boating, always have had. I think my father was in the Navy, so I was always close to the sea. And luckily, my wife spent her summers down in Salkham in Devon, where we still go today, and our children have a uh, an equal passion for it. So for us, it's outside life um, that's that's important, an important tonic. So we begin to conclude every podcast with a quick fire round. And the first question is London or country? Country. Classic or contemporary? Uh, love both, but classic. New York or Paris? Equally love both, but I'm going to say New York. Call or email? Definitely call. It's so important to pick up the phone. Office or working from home? Office still is important. Tea or coffee? Tea. Swimming pool or tennis court? Swimming pool. Walk or run? Walk. Can or Saint-Tropez? Saint-Tropez. And finally, US or the UK? UK. Fantastic. I think that's the quickest quickfire round we've done so far. And so to wrap up the podcast, the one question we ask everybody who comes on is what does connecting people and property perfectly mean to you? Three words, enduring client relationships. Paddy, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of At Home With. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you shared this episode on social media, and please check out the show notes for more information. I'll be back next Wednesday with another exciting episode.